with our study in God's Word. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Exodus chapter 6, verse 13. And just want to say again, welcome. So glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And just such a joy to be together. So glad that you're with us this morning. And just so encouraged by what Lee had to share. And, and he gave the full announcement. But I was just, as I was listening, was just so excited about this opportunity that I just am so uh, grateful, one, for your generosity as a church. Again, if you weren't here in February, you kind of missed this time, but back in February when uh, we started the Compassion uh, Partnership, it was so cool to see, again, 72 kids get sponsored by this church. And, and not only that, but again, we gave the money needed uh, initially, thousands and thousands of, thousands of dollars for this child development center to get started. And so because of your generosity, we were able to partner with Compassion and see this village that didn't have this ministry, that didn't have this gospel presence taking place. Uh, and they were just waiting for support, waiting for, for people to, to partner with them by giving funds to get that ministry started. And, and First Baptist Church of Benicia came along and said, hey, we're in, let's do this. And it was because of your generosity that that was possible. And now again, a goal of $14,000 in the month of December to give to improve the ministry they're doing. It's, it's an exciting time. So we're going to be praying that, that God would uh, allow us to, to get the job done for them. And also, just brief, you might, briefly, you might be seeing some changes happening over in our kids' area. I don't know if you've poked your head out there, but we tore out the current kids' play structure because it was old and falling apart. We got rid of it, and after a long time praying about it, the staff and board decided we needed to put it in a big hot tub for the adults. <laughs> so the parents, adults, it's going to be a kid-free zone. We're just going to get out there and enjoy it. Um, you know, no, this isn't about the kids. No, uh, no just kidding. We, what we're actually doing is in a couple weeks, there's going to be a new play structure that we've purchased that's going to be installed there, that's going to be uh, up-to-date and safe and fun for our kids to enjoy for years to come. And that also was, again, only possible because of your generosity and your giving over the months and years where as a church we had uh, some money in our building projects funds where we could improve the facilities. And so that's one way that we're doing that. So that's a big thank you to you for your generosity in that way. And again, in a couple weeks that will be installed. So with all of that, thank you. And let's pray together as we get ready to jump into God's word. Father, we thank you for the gift of another Sunday to be together as a church and, again, to, to celebrate, Lord, what you're doing, what you're doing here in, in, our, uh, in our church, in our community, in Benicia, and, and what you're doing in Togo, throughout the world, how we get to play a small part in your work in the world. God, we are grateful, and we praise you because uh, you are behind all of this, Lord. It's your uh, purpose, your mission your plan, Lord, to call all people to yourself, to invite people to come and find salvation in you, Jesus. And so thank you, God, that we can participate in that, in that mission. And God, we now ask for your help as we open up your word. Would you guide us as we read it? Would you help us understand what you are saying this morning? Would you speak, God, and by your spirit, uh, open our eyes, help us to see. Convict us, challenge us, change us, Lord. Do your work in us, we pray. Amen. 
All right, so again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6, verse 13. And you know, many kids today will never know the struggle of commercials on network TV. I feel very old as I say that phrase. Many kids, kids today, people today won't understand. But really, they won't understand the struggle of commercials on network TV. Because we got Netflix and we got Hulu and we have Amazon Prime and all these streaming services where many of them don't have commercials. And you can just binge through your favorite TV show episode after episode. You don't have to wait till next week. And within the episode, there's not usually commercial breaks, right? You can just watch it straight through. But do you remember the days where on network television you would watch your favorite weekly TV show or maybe you'd watch a movie on TV and what would be inserted every 10 so odd minutes? Those pesky commercials. And they'd always place them right at these high points in the drama. Suspense would be building Difficult scenarios would be happening. You're not sure the results or how people are going to respond. Then what? Boom! Cheerios commercial. <laughs> or a commercial for some medication that you can't pronounce and has more side effects than benefits. It just interrupts. It interrupts and you have to wait. You wonder why at this point in the drama is there this pause button? We're going to see this in our text this morning in Exodus chapter 6. Verse 13, this text we're going to look at could be seen as a commercial break where things have been building, drama, the story is unfolding, and then pause, and we're almost redirected in a, an entirely different direction. But first, to understand where we are in the text, we should think back on what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus. It's been about three months now that we've been studying the book of Exodus, little by little. We're now again in chapter six, but about three months ago, we jumped in with chapter one, verse one. And so what have we seen along the way? We've seen in chapter one that the people of God are in slavery in Egypt, and they are ruled by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who is harsh, he is bitter, he makes life difficult for them. He's threatened by them. God is blessing them. They are growing, and Pharaoh doesn't like that. And so he seeks to kill them and to reduce their population. Then in chapter 2, we're introduced to Moses, who was born as one of the Israelites, one of God's people. And yet, his mother, in order to save him out of desperation, an act of faith really, she sets him afloat on the Nile River because his life is in danger and he winds up being raised where? In, in Pharaoh's household. He's found by the daughter of Pharaoh, then raised in the household of Pharaoh, trained in all the wisdom and skill of the Egyptians. But as he grows, he seems to begin to identify more with the Hebrew people his own people. And he takes matters into his own hands. Do you remember there's an Egyptian harming one of his own people and he interrupts that and he kills the Egyptian. He takes things into his own hands. And because of that, he's a wanted man. He goes off into exile, living in Midian for several decades. But we see at the end of chapter two that God still cares about his people. His eye is still on his suffering people in the land of Egypt. So chapter three, God calls Moses in a pretty miraculous way. He shows up to him in a burning bush and says, Moses, I am the living God, essentially, and I'm going to send you back to Egypt. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, 
let my people go. And you're going to lead them out of Egypt. And he lays out the plan for him. But then in chapter 4, how does Moses respond? He kind of dodges the question. He says, no, I'm not qualified. The people aren't going to listen to me. I don't want to go. Send somebody else. And God says, too bad. You're still going to go. And so he sends Moses. And Moses goes back to Egypt. And he tells the elders, here's what God has said. Here's what God is going to do for us. And then chapter 5, these past few weeks, we've seen chapter 5, Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh. And they have the initial showdown, right? The Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And not only does he say no, he makes things worse for the slaves. The situation gets harder, more difficult, and they're frustrated. And so the people go to Moses, Moses, what in the world are you doing? And then Moses goes to God and says, God, what, is this why you sent me? Because things haven't gotten any better. You haven't rescued us. Things have only gotten worse. So what exactly is the plan here? And then we saw in chapter 6, God speak to Moses. And he doesn't explain all of his reasons and his whole timeline, but he does reaffirm his promises to the people. I will deliver. I will lead you out. I will bring you to be my own people. Moses then takes that word, those promises again to the people, but the people don't believe Moses. And so we're at this point of desperation where Moses is like, okay, things are getting worse. The people aren't listening to me, God. How in the world is Pharaoh going to listen to me? What are we going to do? He's at this point of discouragement. And so it's there that we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 6. Moses saying, how in the world is this plan going to work, God? This tension, this drama. And so we wonder, okay, how's God going to respond? What's God going to say? Because it seems like Moses is like, hey, game over. This, this isn't going well. We're done. So, so what's God going to do? And then what's Pharaoh going to say? Is Pharaoh going to respond well? Are the people going to be led out of slavery in Egypt? What's going to happen? And right there in the middle of the action, we get a commercial break. <laughs> Seriously, pause in the form of a genealogy, a long list of hard-to-pronounce names mentioning all of the descendants of the 12 sons of Israel, of Jacob, as if the author is saying, your current program, Exodus out of Egypt, will return shortly, but first, I want you to know all the names of these family members. Kind of interesting. So let's, let's read the text together. Let me walk us through it here in verse 13. Notice how the section begins. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. Verse 16, these were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records. Gershon, Kohath, Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershom by clans were Libni and Shimi. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. So again, suspense, drama, Moses isn't going to work. What's God going to say? What's Pharaoh going to do? How's everything going to unfold? And then here are all the names of these 
family members, the 12 sons of Israel and their sons and their descendants and so on. And so it kind of makes you go, what? Why is this here? I mean, I doubt that this is what you came to church for this morning, right? Like, Lord, just, just give me a long list of hard to pronounce names. That's what I need in my life right now. That's doubtful. And yet it's, it's here, but as if in the middle of this great and epic story, you're watching Star Wars, things are about to unfold, and your grandma pauses the TV and says, hold on, let's go look at some family pictures. And you're like, hold on, grandma, I want the, just let the, well, can we, can I wait? Let's look at the story. But let's think about this. From an ancient perspective, the ancient audience who would be reading the book of Exodus, this genealogy in the text would not be unwelcome. It, it would not be unnatural. It, it wouldn't be for them an interruption the way that maybe we look at it today. It, it wouldn't be skipped over as we sometimes do, right, in your Bible reading plan. You come to a long list of names and what do you do sometimes, we're being honest? Like, next chapter, list of names. Okay, and we just kind of set it there. We don't always dive into it. But for the ancient audience of the book of Exodus, they, they wouldn't see it that way. They would see this actually as a really significant part of the story. Because a genealogy would be used to show where someone came from, how they were connected, the credentials that they had to lead, the qualifications that they had to be a part of God's story. And if you think about it, it might not look exactly the same, but we do a similar thing today when we think about people that we know or we're getting acquainted with people, we think in our minds, we try and place people and evaluate them sometimes by the connections that they have. Or we think, oh, even in town, hey, oh, Joe, okay, who's, who's Joe? Oh, he's the son of Susie and Carl. Oh, okay, I know, I know them. Or, yeah, I know, and Susie, she's the daughter of so-and-so. I know, I know their parents, and I know this family, and oh, that's, that's the grandson of so-and-so. I mean, we, we do that, right? It helps us place people. It helps us evaluate people. It helps us have a little bit of a sense of who this person is, where they're from, how they're connected. Or we do this on like a celebrity level as well. Think, oh, Liv Tyler. Okay, she's the daughter of Steven Tyler, who is in that rock band. Okay, I know a bit of that. Again, it helps us place people. Or again, George W. Bush. Okay, yeah, he's the son of George H.W. Bush. And so I know the, the family connection there. Again, it, it, it tells us something about who these people are and their connections and where they come from. So we do something similar today, even if we don't look to these long lists of genealogies. But we need to look at this specific genealogy and see what, what is it telling us specifically? What are we supposed to take away from this? And the first thing we see is that it, it focuses in on Moses and Aaron. Those names we've heard before in the book of Exodus, kind of these key leaders of God's people in the book of Exodus. Look at verse 20 as the story continues. It says, Amram married his father's sister, Yohebed, which we can talk about that another time, but who bore him Aaron and Moses. So Moses and Aaron's parents, Amram and his father's sister, Yohebed, and it says Amram lived 137 years. So this genealogy is starting with the 12 sons of Israel, and it kind of narrows its focus down here and gives us in verse 20, here's Moses and here's Aaron. Here's a bit of where they come from. Think about a little bit of history here. If you look back to the book of Genesis, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And then Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons were the ones who went down to Egypt to live in Egypt, and their families multiplied, and ultimately they became, again, enslaved by Pharaoh. But those were the 12 tribes of Israel, coming from the 12 sons of Jacob, or Israel could be his name. And so we see in this genealogy, it starts how a genealogy would be expected to start, where it lists the sons in order of their birth and talks about their descendants. And so the first three sons were Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And look what we find in verse 14, 15, 16. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, these were the names of Levi. And so it's saying, okay, here's the 12 tribes of Israel, this big old family. Here's how they're connected. First son, Reuben, his descendants. Then Simeon, his descendants. Then Levi, his descendants. And you might expect that this genealogy would just go on through the other 12 sons, right? Through, through all of them. So the fourth son and the fifth son just keep kind of telling us these family connections. But it's interesting because the genealogy stops with Levi, and rather than mentioning the other sons in the 12, it stops with Levi and it kind of starts to trace Levi's line and Levi's descendants and then his descendants, descendants all the way down to Moses and Aaron. And then it goes even a little bit beyond Moses and Aaron. And so it's really telling us something about their leadership. Moses and Aaron, who are these guys? Can they be trusted? Do they have the credentials to lead the people of God? And notice another clue about this. Skip down to the end of the section. Look at verse 26 and 27 with me. It says, It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron. So again, who, who are we talking about? Moses and Aaron. It's this Moses and Aaron that we're talking about. This same Moses and Aaron, showing them they are of the tribe of Levi, connected to him. And again, this genealogy is selective. It's not giving us every name and every generation, but it's showing us how Moses and Aaron have this family history. They belong to the tribe of Levi, of the people of Israel. And the Levites, if you know of their role in the Old Testament, had a special role to serve as priests, to serve in the temple, to serve in the tabernacle as the people were wandering. They represented the people before God. They led in worship. They taught the law of God. They were responsible for handling the sacrifices and offerings in worship. So it was this high honor to be a Levite. And so this text is showing us, hey, Moses and Aaron were of this line. They were Levites. They had the credentials, the qualifications to be used by God in this way. Because what would happen later in their life is their leadership would be questioned. And people were like, I'm not really so sure about Moses and Aaron. Are we sure they're fit to lead us? Are we sure they're the ones that God has called for these specific roles as the story goes on? And this text is used to show, yeah, this Moses and Aaron. This is how they're connected God has called them to serve in this way, their special role in his story. Now maybe that doesn't mean a whole lot to you right now. Maybe that feels like it's not 
a really relevant truth to your life. Moses and Aaron, Levites qualified to lead the people of God back in Exodus and beyond. Okay, pastor, I, I'm, I need a little more than that. Well, let's talk about some other things that this genealogy shows us. What can we learn from a genealogy like this in Scripture? How can this text be relevant to us today? What does it teach us about God and how he works? A couple things. First, this teaches us that, yes, God uses specific people, individuals, in his plans, but he often does so, usually does so, in the context of community. God uses specific people in specific ways, but he often does so in the context of community. Think about it. In this long list of names, we see some pretty noteworthy names, some names that we recognize, right? M Moses and Aaron being the most uh, clear. We've talked about them a lot. We see their role in Exodus, how God uses them powerfully. But then verse 20, it mentions Moses' parents, Amram and Yohebed. Remember them? Remember Moses' mom in chapter 2? We find out her name here is Yoheva. She's the one who placed Moses on the Nile River in this act of desperation, this act of faith. God used her in this special way to preserve Moses' life. And then she actually gets Moses returned to her and gets to nurse him and provide for him and care for him and teach him in the early years of his life. So we say, wow, that's pretty noteworthy. And then verse 25, we're introduced to Aaron's grandson, Phineas. Phineas, verse 25, Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. And if you go and you look in Numbers 25, you see that Phinehas was zealous for God. He put an end to this instance of, of immorality, of idolatry that was taking place before God in a pretty graphic way, actually. You can go and, and read that on your own. But he's known for being zealous for God, wanting to uphold the ways of God. And so you look at this list of names, and you see, wow, there's some pretty noteworthy individuals. Moses and Aaron and Yohebed and Phinehas and, and on and on. But they're not isolated individuals, right? They're a part of this family, this community. They are connected with people around them, people after them, people before them. And see, when the Bible was written, in the ancient world, people, or excuse me, people thought of community identity before they thought of individual identity. So it was more important for the people, the family they were a part of, the tribe that they belonged to, the people that they belonged to, they thought about that identity and those responsibilities more than they thought about their individual identity, their individual fulfillment, pursuing their own dreams and desires. But if you think about it, today it's, it's the exact opposite, right? Where, where we think about well, I'm an individual before I'm a part of a community. We think about our individual identity before we think about our community identity, who we belong to and who we're a part of. Being true to yourself is more important for us often than being true to your community or to your family. Right? And we see this in the, in the songs that we hear on the radio and the stories that we celebrate. So much of it is, again, uh, self-fulfillment. Like, go do your thing. And even if your community, your people, your family says not to, you need to go and do what you need to do. It's part of the narrative in our culture that we celebrate. But this genealogy shows us that, again, these, these famous individuals of Scripture, 
were not isolated. They were actually a part of a network of family and relationships and community that allowed them to embrace the call of God on their lives. And so we see that God cares about individuals, yes, and he uses specific people in specific ways, but he does so in the context of community. Have you ever heard the term hero ball? Hero ball, when someone plays hero ball, usually is in basketball where someone says, I don't really care about my teammates. I'm going to take the shots. I'm not going to pass the ball. I'm going to win the game. It's on me. My skills, I'm going to isolate myself, and the rest of the teams literally sometimes will stand over there so the one player can go and try and score the basket. Hero ball, isolation ball. Sometimes we play hero ball with our faith. So it's up to me. Me and Jesus, what God's doing in my life, that's what really matters. And so we see validation for that narrative when we say, well, look at Moses and look at Aaron and look at these people that God used. I want to be like that. I want to have this big role in the story. It's about what God is saying to me, how God is calling me. And in some ways that's true. We do need to hear the voice of God and how he's calling us specifically, how he wants to use you and your gifts and your unique place in life to serve him. Those things are important, but we cannot do that in isolation. Right? We don't just run off and play hero ball with our faith and say it's just about me and Jesus. Because the Bible doesn't just give us the story of individuals. It gives us a story of a community, a family, a a group of people that has a corporate identity, right? As a church, we're not just a collection of individuals. We have this corporate identity as the people of God. So much of the New Testament is written to the church, the gathered people of God. And so I, I encourage you to think about who are those people in your life that you're following Jesus with? Do you have this network of relationships and community around you helping you Follow Jesus? Are there people that have come before you, that have passed on the faith to you, that have shaped you, encouraged you, molded you into the person that you are? Do you have peers in your life? People maybe in a similar life stage that are walking through some of the same things that are helping you navigate those challenges? Do you have people who are coming after you? The next generation that you're praying for, loving, encouraging, investing in that they might follow Jesus as well? If you were to think about your genealogy, let's say there was a genealogy here in the text and it wasn't of Moses and Aaron, but it was of, of you and, and your family and your connections in the faith. Would there be names there? Or are we trying to play hero ball with our faith? As I think it, about my own life, for Amber and I, I think about, I think it, pretty much our entire married life and even the years that we were dating and engaged, we've pretty much always been a part of small groups in some form in the church. We've pretty much always had a group of people that we were walking through life with, that we were praying for, that were praying for us. We were reading scripture together, learning together, growing together, serving together. Those people, those relationships shaped us into the people that we are today because of their wisdom because of their encouragement, because of their help, because of their friendship. Right? We do not become the people that God wants us to be just in isolation and on our own. And so again, who were those people in your life 
helping you walk through these challenges with. So that's one thing the genealogy can show us, the connectedness, the community aspect that God cares about. But maybe you're looking at this text and you're saying, you know what, Pastor, you, you failed to mention that a lot of these names in this list are really flawed, sinful, broken people. There's a lot of ugly stuff going on in this family. And if you're thinking that, you are right. You are right. We look at this family, and it's not nice and tidy and clean. It's actually full of sin and conflict and dishonoring God in different ways. Someone once said, there are two reasons I don't trust people. Number one, I don't know them yet. And number two, I know them. And this is an example where we see these names that we know. We know some of these names. And they're not so great. The stories behind them are not so great. So let's think about a few of those examples that we see listed here. One, again, Moses. Right? We've seen up, up close and personal. His flaws, his failures, his sin. Saying no to God. Doubting God. Dodging God. Taking things into his own hands. Killing people. You name it. Um, let's think about Reuben. Verse 14, the firstborn son of Jacob. He has some uh, very shady sexual business going on in Genesis chapter 35. You can go and read about that. Some of the uh, ungodly sexual immorality in his life. Verse 23 mentions Aaron's sons. Look at it with me. Aaron married Elishba, daughter of Amenadab and sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Now, the story of Nadab and Abihu, again, is not a happy one. In Leviticus 10, they disobey God. They offer, they bring an offering and a sacrifice in a way that was not lawful, and they are killed on the spot, instantly, by God, torched, judged, boom, they die. So that's not pretty. And then it makes us think, well, what about Aaron? Man, he's their dad. What, what did he do wrong to make them the go that direction. And then verse 24, it men mentions Korah. Do you know the story of Korah and his pals in Numbers chapter 16? Leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, saying, they're not fit to lead the people of God. Who put them in charge? Are we really sure that God wants them in leadership and tries to overthrow them? And what happens to them? They're swallowed up by the earth. Literally, hole in the ground opens up. They fall down. God kills them. They die. True story. Go read it in Numbers chapter 16. And so we see all these sinful, uh, wicked, difficult parts of this family's story. And so if you think your family is messed up, just go read the Bible. <laughs> Seriously, just read this genealogy and you'll feel a lot better about your upcoming holiday gatherings with your family and, <laughs> and who's sitting around the table. Could be a lot worse. But seriously, like, no joke, no joke. We see in this family sin, sexual immorality, dishonoring God, judgment, really, really wicked things. And, and, and so scripture, rather than hiding those stories and saying, We're just, let's just like clean up the genealogy. We'll leave some of those names off this list. We don't have to talk about that. Our crazy cousin, let's just leave him out. Let's just, we will talk about the really good people in the story. Instead of trying to do that, the Bible just lays it all out there for us. Here's this family that God used. 
makes us say, wow. I think it can be an encouragement to us. I think it can give us hope. Hope for our families. Hope for us individually, because if we're honest, we look at our own lives and we look at our family and there's usually some dysfunction there and usually some, some sin there and some pain there and some things that, that we're ashamed of. Maybe we carry shame because of certain things our kids or our family members have done. Maybe we carry shame with us because of certain things we've done, the state of our family currently, and it, it weighs us down. The Bible shows us, if, if you're in that place today, that, that you're not alone. In the pages of Scripture, we see such a family, the very family that God chooses to use, and we see their flaws, and we see their failures. And, and I don't say this again to, to excuse sin and say, oh, sin's not that really really not that big of a deal, or to make light of, of sin. I, I point this out because I think it's good news for us, right, that God uses this family. God uses these broken people to bring about his purposes into the world. God doesn't say, oh, you're too far gone. I'm gonna go work with somebody else. Well, he still works through them. He uses broken people. And so if you're here this morning, I, just, I want you to know that Scripture shows us that God wants to use you. God wants to use your family. You're not too far gone for God's plans. And sometimes what we do is we just disqualify ourselves. You know, we think, I've failed too often, or my family's too messy or too broken, or God, surely God wouldn't work through us, or God wouldn't want to use me in this way, so I should just kind of stay on the sidelines of ministry and not expect God to do much in me or through me with other people, but that's a lie. God does want to use you. God can use you. God does have a purpose for your life. Look at Ephesians 2 with me. Ephesians 2, verse 8. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Okay, simple summary of the gospel, right? You have been saved by grace, forgiven, washed, cleansed, renewed, reconciled to God by his doing, his grace through faith, not by works, not by earning it. But some of us will stop there. Ooh, glad I'm forgiven, but God probably just wants me to sit on the sidelines the rest of my life. But then look at the next verse, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we are created in Christ, made new in Christ, called to follow Jesus that we might do good works, that we might walk in these Good works that God's already prepared for us. He goes, God looks out at your future and has already lined up things for you to do. Good works for you to step into. Situations for you to step into. People for you to love. Broken situations for you to bring hope to. He's lined it up for you. So God's looking forward at your future, saying, here we go. Not saying stay on the sidelines, but, but get in the game. You're invited by God to be used in this way. So how does God want to use you in the lives of the people around you, at your work, in your family, in your neighborhood, to make an impact in Jesus' name? 
There's one other thing I think that genealogies can help us with today. It can be helpful for us today because we see that the Bible is rooted in history. It shows us that we're talking about real people here. Real people, a real family, real descendants, real family connections. This isn't just made up, right? But the the history of the people knowing about their ancestors, the generations that came before them, that was very important for them to trace that from ancient times into their present, seeing how God had worked in the generations before them, how God was at work in their day. They weren't just saying, hey, once upon a time, some myths happened. We're not really sure if any of it really happened. No, they said, these are the things God did. These are the people God used in real space, real history, And we see the same conviction in the New Testament. The early church, the followers of Jesus, were not writing a once upon a time story, some fairy tale, some myth. They were very concerned about sharing, here's what happened, here's who it happened to, here's when it happened, here's how they're connected. So we see genealogies help us see that God works in real history with real people. And again, these stories aren't pretty. Think about that. These stories are not pretty. There's shame and sin and all kinds of brokenness on display. And I think that can give us confidence that what we read about is true and and actually happened. Because here's what sometimes people will say. So the Bible was just made up or it was heavily edited to serve the needs of those in power or it was heavily edited so that those in power, the leaders of this movement could look good or could be used in a certain way. And and I always say, and I think to that, if that's the case, if that's really what happened, then they did a terrible job. (laughs) They did a horrible job because you read in just raw ways how the main characters, the leaders of the people of God often look really bad, really bad, really foolish, really wicked even. And so don't you think, honestly, don't you think if you were making this up and you, really, you felt the freedom to edit this how you felt fit, don't, don't you think you'd maybe leave some of these details out? Don't you think you'd, just, it'd be pretty easy to not mention some of these things, not mention some of these family members, not mention some of these stories about Moses? Or don't you think you maybe, maybe add a couple things, embellish things a little bit, add some more uh, hero stories about the things that the leaders had done? But instead, what we find is, is the Bible just being relentless in displaying the failures of the men and women involved. It's just relentless. It's stark. It's, it's honestly painful sometimes to look at these failures and sin. And what it does is it over and over again highlights our need for God himself. Over and over again, we see the people in the Bible fail and are flawed, and they're not heroes. There's only one hero in the story, and it's Jesus. So again, that can give us confidence that, hey, this is how it happened. And I know a lot of people have questions about the Bible. Can we trust it? Why should we trust the Bible? And those are great questions. We should totally explore that topic together. We'd love to talk with you about that. There are great resources out there. But what I'm saying just for today is that I hope that this piece can help us trust the Bible a little bit more to see that this real stark picture it paints of people points to its truth, its validity. Now, if you're familiar with 
the Bible and genealogies, maybe what comes to mind for you when you hear about a genealogy is the genealogy of Jesus. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 6 in the Old Testament. Here's this family, all these connections. And we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the Bible doing the same thing, not about Moses and Aaron and their credentials and their connections, but with the person of Jesus, right? In Matthew and Luke, we see them showing, here's where Jesus came from, here's his family line, his family connections, and it shows us that he's qualified to be the Messiah, to be the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. In Luke chapter 3, that genealogy connects Jesus to Adam, showing how he's connected to all of humanity. And then we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so it shows us Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David, a descendant of David, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of a king from the line of David that would come and rule as Messiah and rescue the people of God. So again, we see with Jesus, his work is rooted in history. Real people, real names. He stepped into our world, not a myth, not a legend, not a once upon a time, but the scriptures show us in great lengths, here's who Jesus is, here's where he came from. And also like the family line of Aaron and Moses, we see a pretty messy family picture for Jesus as well. And some of the people named in his genealogy, sin and brokenness. And it actually reminds us why we needed Jesus to come, to rescue, to save, to be the hero, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so friends, the real Jesus stepped into real history. And what that means is he requires a real response from each of us. Sometimes what we do is we come to church and we, we hear about Jesus and, and we leave him kind of in the category of nice ideas. We say, this, this, maybe I like what I hear. or Maybe I come to church and I'm not really sure what to do with this whole Jesus thing, but I like, I like the snacks that are put out, especially those savory ones with the little hot dogs and croissant things or <laughs> Or, you know, I like, I like the people. They're friendly. They're nice. I like, you know, people knowing my name or getting a, getting a hug on Sundays. That's really encouraging. But, but this, this Jesus, I like him as an idea. I'm not so sure I want to respond to him personally. And sometimes the way we think about Jesus is the way we think about those flyers we get in the mail. I brought some examples for us. You know, we get... There's all these things in the mail, advertisements and, and coupons week after week. And if you're like me, you have like a basket or a little place on your table that it just kind of builds up. It just stacks up and you don't really do a lot with it until a couple weeks later and you're like, I really need to throw some of this out. But you get things like Costco membership stuff and Ace hardware. I'm never going to use that. I'm not very handy. And <laughs> refinancing student loans. That might be helpful one day. Uh, Credit card applications, uh, Wayfair, not really sure what that is. HelloFresh, anyone use HelloFresh? Want some HelloFresh coupons or home security stuff, Shutterfly, go make a booklet, Untuck It catalog, nice shirt, it's a little pricey, Grapevine, a lot of useless stuff in here. And we get this and it just piles up on our desk and it's like coupons. And it doesn't ask much of us, right? It just sits there and we're like, well, I guess if I get around to using this, it'd be nice. Keep it at arm's length. It's here. I'll deal with it eventually. 
some nice ideas. I guess a coupon would be nice. I guess, you know, going to HelloFresh and trying that out could be cool. And sometimes we just put Jesus in that category. It's this, this little coupon that gets sent to us. And we're like, hey, if you want to use this, cool. If not, no worries. Ignore me if you want. Keep me at arm's length if you want. No big deal. But the invitation of Jesus is not just like some coupon or flyer in the mail that you can just ignore and push off and not respond to because the real Jesus stepped in to real time space history and expects a real response. He invites you and you and you and me to put our trust in him, to, to personally come to him and trust in him for salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we see in these genealogies, Old Testament and New Testament, God works in, in history and, and expects a, a decision from us that we would say yes to him, obey him, recognize him as Savior and Lord. And so I'm gonna close here just by saying a short prayer. I wanna invite you, if you're here this morning and you, you haven't responded to Jesus, you've never put your faith in him, said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you, I need you, then I wanna invite you just to pray that prayer along with me, quietly in your heart, and respond to him. Or if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, you can pray this prayer again, just uh, establishing again, reaffirming your commitment to Jesus. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you stepped into real time and space history. You walked among us. Jesus, you died for us. And so God, we want to say thank you and just recognize our need before you. We have sinned. We have fallen short. We have disobeyed you. And Jesus, we ask you to come and heal us, forgive us, Lord, enter our lives, transform us. And Lord, now we, we look out at the rest of our lives and we want to say yes to following you. You are our Savior and our Lord, our Rescuer and our King, where we now seek to shape everything in our lives around you and your ways. So Jesus, we thank you and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>